Today's episode of Candid Conversations is not suitable for young audiences. Parents, please listen to this podcast without your children present. You may choose to share portions of this podcast with them later, but please listen to it first. There's never going to be a Christian so solid that you don't get a piece of heresy from them. And there's never going to be an atheist so bad that you don't get a piece of truth from them. And so find truth wherever it can be found and appreciate it there, knowing that sometimes you're going to get some amazing truth from someone who's not a Christian. But if you know how to recognize biblical truth, you can say, amen. They just said something that I think totally squares up with the Bible, and they said it in a way that kind of made me think differently. So thank you, Lord, for revealing that to me, that it's consistent with your scripture, that, um, you know, you don't care who your messenger is sometimes. Yeah. yeah. Hello and welcome to Candid, where we never settle for less than the truth. I'm your host, Jonathan Youssef. Each week, we'll tackle tough issues, answer your hard questions, and take a candid look at the Christian faith. Would you mind leaving us a review today? By leaving a review and rating, it helps others to find us, and it would be a huge help. Using your favorite podcast platform, go to our show and leave a rating along with a review, and perhaps next week we will mention you on the show. When it comes to ensuring the spiritual well-being of our children, how do we go beyond just raising them in the church? As the next generation navigates unprecedented issues surrounding gender identity, doubt, and resistance to the Christian faith, it won't be enough for them to simply have the faith of their parents. How do we equip them to become disciples of Jesus Christ in a hostile world? According to Barna and USA Today, nearly 59% of youth leave the church after they graduate, and only 17% maintain a biblical worldview. According to a LifeWay survey, the most common catalysts for leaving the church are moving to college, witnessing hypocrisy within the church, and no longer feeling connected to the body of Christ. Today, we welcome a new guest, Hilary Morgan Ferrer. Her passion is to help equip parents to answer the questions that our children will inevitably ask and teach them how to demolish arguments raised against the knowledge of God. She is the founder and Mama Bear-in-Chief of Mama Bear Apologetics, and she has a burden to help provide accessible apologetics resources for busy parents. Together, Hillary and I discuss how we can better equip children and parents with resources and critical thinking skills, including her own methodology called ROAR, to help families recognize unbiblical ideas and develop discernment. Hillary is the chief author and editor of the best-selling book, Mama Bear Apologetics, Empowering Your Kids to Challenge Cultural Lies, and Mama Bear Apologetics Guide to Sexuality. Empowering Your Kids to Understand and Live Out God's Design. Hillary has her master's degree in biology from Clemson University and is working on her master's in apologetics from Biola University. She loves helping moms to discern both truths and lies in science and culture, and she specializes in understanding the root causes of doubt. Now, on to our candid conversation. 
Today, it's a, a special privilege to have uh, Hillary Morgan Ferrer. Am I saying that correctly? Yes, you are. Awesome. On the first time, too. Okay, all right. I think someone wrote it out phonetically for me, so I don't uh, make a, a mess of it. Uh, Art person. <laughs> Hillary's the founder of Mama Bear Apologetics. Uh, she has a burden for providing accessible apologetics resources for busy parents. She has a master's in biology, and her specialties are in cultural apologetics, the relationship between science and faith, and understanding the root cause of doubt. Her best-selling book, Mama Bear Apologetics, and her newest book, The Mama Bear Apologetics Guide to Sexuality, are empowering parents and their children to challenge cultural lies. Hillary, thank you so much for taking the time to be on Candid Conversations. Absolutely. I love love uh, being able to talk to people about all the research we've done here. Well, I'm sure you can attest to this. One, it's needed. Two, I think people aren't aware that it's out there. Mm. We feel like we need to reinvent the wheel so many times. And I've heard this in so many interviews with people who have come to faith and are doing very similar work to what you're doing. And they said, I had no idea that there were these vast resources at my disposal, and I just I didn't know they were there. And so that's one of our hopes is that we're connecting people with great resources that will help them not only in their own lives, but in the lives of their children, their friends, their family, and the world that uh, the people that God's put around them. I wonder if you take a minute for us and tell us about your background and tell us how Mama Bear Apologetics got started and uh, how you ended up in Iowa. (laughs) Yeah, so in terms of background, I grew up in a Christian family. Um, My dad was also very much an intellectual. And so even I remember from a young age, we were talking about stuff that some of the other people in my family would just kind of tune out because he and I liked really getting into the nitty gritty ideas. Um, And so I think he really developed a love of learning and a love of understanding and how to ask questions and um, knowing that questions have answers. And so I think he really was pivotal for kind of the, the formation of just my personality in the sense that uh, what I do now really is an outflow of that. But I would say one of the most impactful moments I ever had was when I was 12 and our pastor did a series on apologetics from the pulpit. He went through C.S. Lewis's trilemma, you know, was Jesus a liar, a lord, or lunatic? And he took a whole week for each one of those. And of course, if he were to do it now, you we would have to add a fourth category, which is legend, because it hadn't even occurred to people that, hey, Jesus doesn't exist. We've got like two scholars out there who want to contest this right. and a whole lot of internet atheists. Yeah, but yeah, um, right. uh, so he went through that. Then he went through the reliability of the New Testament documents, which, I mean, absolutely blew my mind, the number of mm. manuscripts that we have and uh, showing faithfulness to all throughout the centuries of the, the same text being reliably transmitted. And if there was any tiny, tiny little change, we have it footnoted. We know exactly where they are. Yeah. And then the third one was, did Jesus really rise from the dead? And each week he took another theory. Oh, the disciples went to the wrong tomb or he just swooned the swoon theory. I always have to spell that with like 12 O's just because it's so ridiculous. Uh, or the hallucination hypothesis, stuff like that. Wow. And uh, 
it was for the first time that I realized I don't just believe in Christianity because my parents say so. And because I knew I'd had a love for it. I had this desire to be a missionary. Even when I was young, I remember telling my mom, I'm, I want to be a nun. And she's like, you can't, sweetie, that's only for Catholics. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, you know, the heart was there. The heart was there. I'm like, I want to serve God. Um, but this was the first time I realized, oh, this is something that I can talk to non-believers about. It's not just something that... I just believe I have good reasons. And based on my personality, you know, I hadn't gotten to the age where I started asking all those questions yet. And so having it introduced to me at that age was perfect because I was able to build my faith from the ground up in the sense that my faith was grounded in reason and evidence and um, objectivity. And so my pastor would always say, we serve a God and we have a reasonable, rational faith. Yes, yeah. And that really, really attracted me. So um, long story short, I kind of started, you know, I would like I think high school, I wrote some of my first papers and stuff and then um, kind of got away from apologetics for a long time. I was a photographer for about 10 years, um, but I never really lost the love of it. It should tell you something about your career tract when you're like in school for photography, but on the side, you're sneaking off to these science conferences that are talking about intelligent design and, you know, bacterial flagellum. And it's like, that's what makes you all excited. Right. So I should have known something was up there. But um, <laughs> a rare. I ended up meeting my husband. We were on two sides of the continent. Um, so yes, we met on MySpace. It wasn't on purpose, but we were like in a chat room to get, uh, or not chat room. It's like, you know, MySpace had those groups. Yeah. And um, so our first date was at a uh, apologetics conference at Biola wow. on God and time and the cosmological argument with William Lane Craig. So that kind of set date. the tone for our marriage. And <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, just your average first date. Um, so we just really knew that we wanted our marriage to be a ministry, and that's how it always was. We knew that whatever we did, we were doing ministry together. And so I had expected to be good all his speaking engagements and for him to be the real apologist because he has a lot of the formal education. But um, when I found out, I, I, I just this one phrase that a friend of mine said, she's like, do you realize how big of a demographic there are of women who won't read something unless it's by women for women? Wow. And that right there was like game changer for me. Like really this, well, who's reaching and like, I wasn't just had a heart for women. I had a heart for moms Yeah, because moms are the ones who get all these questions first. Like dad, when it gets to, I think the the research that I've done, they become more important kind of in the later teen years Mm -hmm. and usually about political stuff. Cause mom's like, nah, go talk to your father. Yeah. Right. Um, But when it, comes to everything else, they always want to go to mom first. And so I thought, this is the demographic that we need to be equipping. And so the Lord just kind of gave me an obsession with moms, even though I myself am not a mom and I have enough health problems to where um, the Lord has just kind of said, that's not in the cards for us, but I don't think I'd be able to do the ministry that I do if I were to, to have children. So, um, People have called me the mama bear of the mama bears. So I'll have spiritual children all out there. And I I, I know that I'm doing what God's called me to do. But so that's kind of how I got into what I'm doing. Uh, At least that's how the ministry started. Was it the ministry first or did you write the book and then the ministry flowed out of that? What was sort of the timeline on those things? 
Yeah. So the ministry started first and I thought, you know, we'll just, we'll do podcasts because women are busy. They don't have time to sit and read anything. Um, and within two years, we had a publisher reaching out to us, asking us for a book. And so one of my strong convictions is I don't want to write a book that's already been written. Yep. Um, and so what I started looking at what was for parents, one of my good friends, Natasha Crane has an incredible series on just like just different questions and answers, kind of, um, you know, 50 questions that kids have about Jesus or about God. And so I knew I, I didn't want to recreate because I think she really did a good job on those. And so what I did was I took all those questions and I wrote them on a uh, dry erase board. Yeah. And then I tried to figure out what are some of the themes? Yeah. What are some of the hidden undergirding philosophies and ideologies that these questions are then being birthed out of because mm. you know the idea of did you know did miracles really happen that's coming from a very postmodern mindset or can you disprove god that's coming from a very scientific and a materialist naturalist kind of mindset yeah. and so i started looking for what are the things that are being absorbed by kids, by culture that we're not even aware of that are actually undermining the faith. And that's what I wanted to write the book on and kind of take some of these really complex ideas and philosophical ideas and really boil them down to where anyone could understand them. And then um, I don't like just pointing out what's wrong with everything. So we created the ROAR method. The ROAR method stands for recognize the message, offer discernment, argue for a healthier approach, and reinforce these ideas with your kids yeah. through discussion, discipleship, and prayer. And so we were saying, okay, we want to recognize what's going on with this idea, but what is the good? It's like usually the most potent lies are wrapped in partial truths. And if, if we don't recognize the partial truth, you miss. then people think, well, you just don't understand. Sort of throw the baby out with the bathwater kind of concept, right? I mean, you, you, you want to appreciate the nugget of truth yeah. that is, like you said, wrapped up in the falsehoods. Yeah, because what happens is it's like a lot of times people are so dead focused on whatever that little nugget of truth is that if you just poo-poo the whole thing, all they hear is she or he doesn't get it. I need to yell louder. <laughs> yeah, or roar at them, right? And I need to get more aggressive. So if we want to have really productive and fruitful conversations, we need to be able to recognize what is the good that this offered. I, I, who was it? I'm trying to think of. He wrote um, Kingdom of the Cults. Do you remember his name? Walter Martin. Yes. And one of the things he says was cults, are the church's unpaid bills. So I would say a lot of these ideologies are picking up on stuff that maybe the church has traditionally kind of ignored yeah. and made those issues front and center and built a whole following around them. But it, it also goes back to Chesterton. He says, don't take down a fence until you know why it was there. So it's like they're so focused on this thing that's been neglected that they just obliterate all the other fences right. that were there because this one aspect wasn't being addressed. And so if we can do it to where we recognize what's the good this person's trying to offer, they, they don't think, hey, I'm peddling lies. Yeah. Like, what is it that they think that they're doing? And we can affirm that. And then we can distinguish it from the lies that are there. And then we can show them how, hey, the thing you care about, I care about. Yeah. And in fact, the Bible addresses this. And it actually a lot of times has better, more longer lasting solutions than the secular answer. Yeah. 
Well, and that's a very Christ-like approach, isn't it? You know, I mean, they uh, thinking of the Pharisees or anyone that comes up to Jesus and says, uh, here's, you know, what we think or what we say. And he's sort of he'll be able to pull the thread and say, yes, you know, you're right in what you say. But and then, you know, reframe the subject in a Mm -hmm. proper manner. I think you're right. I think that's an area where we tend to be weak. We tend to go to black and white and see any yeah. shade of falsehood and then obliterate, as you said, the the entire case rather than kind of delicately taking those things apart. And I do want to come to this because I love this uh, concept and phraseology that you use of chew and spit. Mm-hmm. Talk us a little bit through that. Yeah, so the chew and spit method is really interacting with ideas where um, it's like it's something that most kids already – are well equipped to it's like any mom knows that you give a kid a pile of food they're going to first pick through it to make sure you didn't put some kind of unfamiliar vegetable in there make sure that they are okay with everything that's there and then they'll eat the food you know pick off the mushrooms or whatever it is that they don't want to eat yes so this comes naturally to them um this idea of you don't just swallow everything and so if we can take that instinct and have them apply it to ideas or to media or to sometimes even sermons i've had some (laughs) horrific heresy preached from uh, the pulpit before not on a whole church but usually like when john and i were searching for a church that we were like oh my gosh that if kids have a hard time distinguishing they think that as long as someone says they're christian then they believe all the same things and so everything's validated yeah yeah and i think natasha talked about when she and her husband started going back to church i think the church they went to was super progressive so but they were reading the bible on their own but it took them a while to be like i don't think they're saying the same thing that i'm seeing in my bible between yeah that's interesting. Yeah. yeah so but just looking at ideas and saying what is the good are there any lies that have slipped in with it and so we're, we're basically chewing it you know we're, we're taking stuff in and then we're testing it you know it's kind of like in first thessalonians test everything yeah. and the things that we are like no i don't think that's biblical we can just kind of spit that out i think there's a lot of literature that we can do this with i think there's some movies that we can do with uh, this with now some people have turned this into hillary is saying that you can watch the you know raciest r movie and just kind of you know go for the storyline <laughs> and spit out all the porn that happens to be in it no uh, that is not what we're saying you don't purposely put stuff in when you're like, oh, this one's got cyanide. Don't worry, I can spit that out. Yeah. But when you're interacting with ideas and when you're interacting with people, this is a great way to do it so that um, it really uh, makes it so you're not limited as to who you can learn from. Because like I, I think I say in the book, there's never going to be a Christian so solid that you don't get a piece of heresy from them. And there's never going to be an atheist so bad that you don't get a piece of truth from them. And so find truth wherever it can be found and appreciate it there, knowing that sometimes you're going to get some amazing truth from someone who's not a Christian. Um, But if you know how to recognize biblical truth, you can say, amen. They just said something that I think totally squares up with the Bible. And they said it in a way that kind of made me think differently. So thank you, Lord, for revealing that to me, that it's consistent with your scripture and that, um, you know, you don't care who your messenger is sometimes. Yeah. yeah. Oh, 100%. I wonder if you can help us think, that, what is the idea of a mama bear? Yes. And I think that can be probably carried over to a, a papa bear. I know you are with the intention of a particular 
uh, narrow focus on moms as they raise children. But like, what is the idea mm-hmm. behind the that kind of image that is quite clear and is even on the logo? Yeah, <laughs> this is before the whole like mama bear craze thing happened. So apparently, I was just like slightly ahead of the curve right. <laughs> for that. Now everybody's mama bear this, mama bear that. <laughs> but um. There was a woman in my parents' Sunday school who was telling her kind of her testimony and her story about her younger son who had been raised in church. He went to Awana. He um, rededicated his life in college, and mm. she thought, "We're set here. We're good." Yes. Um, his first job out of college, his his uh, boss said, "Why do you still believe in Jesus? That's Santa Claus for adults." And that was just paradigm shifting for him to where he came back and told his mom, I I think I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God anymore. From that simple phrase. Wow. Yeah, I think that was like the seed. I'm sure there was other things in there, but that was the seed that kind of blew everything apart. She was never one of those ones that did like deep philosophical study on anything. Right. But what she found herself doing is saying, oh my gosh, this is happening to my child. I need to do whatever it takes. And so she started reading philosophy. She started reading apologetics. She started learning about postmodernism. And she was just an outspoken proponent of like, how did the church miss this wave of postmodernism, how did they not prepare us for this completely new soil mm. that our kids are are being raised in? And I remember sitting back and thinking, what is that? That's a, that's an instinct mm. that should be bottled. And I thought, that's a mama bear yeah. in the sense that she will do something not for her own passion, not because that's what moves her and excites her. But when she sees something messing with her kids, she will rise up. And deny herself and do whatever it takes to take down the thing that has taken her child down. Yeah. And so I thought, what if we could take that instinct, which everybody knows the mom instinct, like you don't come between a mom and her kids if something's going on, just like you don't come between a mama bear and her cubs. Mm. How do we channel that towards the Christian faith to where they see, oh my gosh, there are these ideas that are coming and that are undermining my child's ability to have faith. How do we kind of harness that, I'll just call it indignation, (laughs) and turn it towards where they are willing to study stuff that they wouldn't have normally studied for themselves. And I will tell you, the way that I did not expect for the book to do as well as it did, we have, it's like the women were hungry for this. They knew something was off. Yeah. And they couldn't put their finger on it. And for the first time, they feel like I can finally understand what's off. I knew something was off. I just didn't know what. Yeah. So in thinking through the that concept and that idea of mama bear, how do you distinguish between that and what people would refer to as helicopter parenting? <laughs> um, helicopter parenting would be curling. You've seen curling in the Olympics uh, right, yeah. where you send something down and the people are busily making this path for them. So it's yes. the easiest path of least resistance to get it to go where it wants to go. I would say that's like helicopter parenting. And that works as long as you don't have a puck that has a mind of its own. Um, I would say that the mama bear, what we're doing is we're teaching kids to think for themselves, but we're grounding that in biblical truth. So it's like a child that's pointed to truth will keep that as long as they agree that you're the authority. It's like if we're teaching our kids stuff and, you know, take it from mom and dad, take it from pastor, whoever, they swallow anything that an authority says, well, you put them in another situation where there's another authority. Well, they're going to swallow whatever that authority says because they've been trained 
their whole life to agree with authority uh, or who they perceive as the, the authority in a particular sphere. If we're teaching them how to spot things themselves and how this is coherent and that's not coherent and how this is the secular worldview and this is the biblical worldview, you're basically trained. I mean, it really is a training program where they can go out into the world and we don't have to worry as much about the stuff that the world throws at them. They see lies for what they are because they were trained to. So I would say that's definitely not helicopter parenting. That would- you're equipping the the cub, so to speak. So it's that the child, the cub, whatever you want to describe it, they mm-hmm. have the critical thinking skills and the cognition to be able to pull the thing apart and even to use this methodology that you talk about, recognizing a message, using chew and spit, and then that's actually a, a tool for the rest of their life, right? So you've actually given them a gift. Mm-hmm. In fact, I'm, I'm going to – in a second, I'm going to ask you a question from one of our listeners that re- – okay. in this specific regard. It, it's almost like profound to me what you've just described, which is it's the authority figure dominance – and if that's the message that they're getting, it's like – I don't even know how to explain it, but you're exactly right because I think of the timeline of so many people that I know that have walked away from the faith. And it was often college and when they're sort of removed from the the leadership of the home, the – The protective bubble. Right. And it's like but – no, but like to the authority figure thing, like you're saying – I now have this mm-hmm. university professor who is clearly an authority and is even probably an authority mm-hmm. above my parents because they have a list of uh, yep. alphabet you know, degrees behind their name. And so now I'm listening to them and I'm taking what they're saying as truth just as I was kind of raised to think the same way about my parents. And if you know Professor yep. XYZ is doing what that boss did to the example of the young man in your story – this is a Santa Claus, you know, fictional thing, and you, you've bought into this lie. It's almost an easy transition for them to go. Well, I'm following this new leader now. Versus, okay, mm-hmm. and I'm even thinking like just you know because parents will probably tell their kids, hey, you know, when you go to college, uh, these professors are going to try and brainwash you and all that sort of thing. Is like I, I don't even know if that's the right preparation for uh-uh. a child. You know, no. <laughs> we had Michael Kruger on who was one of my professors in seminary, and his talking about, you know, dirt is good, that there's a level of needing to expose your children to these ideas while they're in that sort of safe bubble of the home. Mm-hmm. But again, it's preparing them for the things that they're going to face when you're not around and building up yeah. those skills for them. And that's, I think, a lot of people listening to this right now are hopefully finding it as profound as I am in this moment and hopefully shifting our parenting style uh, in some of those ways. I know that this is a psychological thing. I've asked psychologists about this and they say, yes, this is a thing, but nobody can tell me what it's called. So I just kind of call it the founder's effect, um, which, you know, um, is probably not the correct term, but I needed to call it something. You've coined um, the phrase. It's this idea that the first person to present you with something in your mind becomes the authority on it. it they become the expert yeah. on it. Yes, yes. And so if the university professors or the online atheist on Reddit or some kid from school is the first person to, to introduce them to ideas that are contrary to the biblical worldview, 
mom and dad didn't tell me about this. They probably don't know about this. So I can't go to them with these questions. Therefore, I need to go to the person who is the expert. The expert's probably the one who uh, brought it up first. And so that's why in the second book, the sexuality book, we say you need to be the first one talking to your kids about all these things that are coming up because you want to establish yourself as the expert in their eyes. And, and even if you're not saying, okay, honey, sit down, I'm going to tell you all about homosexuality. You know, you can say stuff like, what have you heard about this? And I want you to know, if you hear something, you have questions, I want you to come to me because I know about this. This is now you presenting something. And if they do hear something like, oh, mom already knows about this. Dad already knows about this. Yeah. Um, and so I think that the same way for a lot of the arguments against Christianity, the best place to begin talking about the arguments of, uh, regarding Christianity is in the home. Yeah, in the church. My pastor's wife uh, growing up used to say, I don't want my kids hearing anything they haven't heard in my kitchen first. And I think that is just a very wise process. To I, I think that's a wise mantra. Something you said earlier, and I, I, I wrote a note down because I wanted to talk about this. You talked about there's kind of this difference between interacting with ideas versus consumption of media. I don't know if you meant to kind of create those two things, but I think those are two very different things. Yes, they are. Can you talk to us about that and help us think through that clearly? I think the interacting with ideas themselves, um, I think all ideas are worth interacting with just so you can say what's the benefits, what are the cons, you know, is this coherent? Does it make sense? Does it explain reality? Like, I think all ideas can come down to that. Now, um, the reason I I bring up the difference between that and media is because I have had people say, uh, well, I'm not just going to put smut in front of my kids and hope they can, you know, tell the difference between what's good and what's not. And I'm like, ooh, that's not the impression I tried to <laughs> give out. Um, but um, there's a, a verse that talks about uh, that people who have, through the practice of discernment, are able to identify what is excellent. Mm. So that there is this practical idea, this practice of knowing what is excellent that I think in some media we're not going to have anything. That is just like a hundred percent. Yep, that's a hundred percent God glorifying. You know, God could have written that himself. It's just not going to exist. You've got one perfect book, the Bible, one perfect man, Jesus. And even the Bible, you still have to have your chew and spit ready because if you look at every single cult, even Satan is trying to twist the words of scripture. So when it does come, there's going to be some things that we decide, you know what, we need, we need to toss that all together. I'm just going to. I haven't watched this, but I've heard it from enough people. I don't think that Game of Thrones is something that any serious Christian needs to be watching. Right. Because I've heard that it is just, it's straight up pornography. Sure. Yeah. And so, like, that's one of those things where you can decide in advance. That's a, that's purely a spit. I'm not going to go put myself sure. viewing people having sex in front of me because there might be a good storyline. No, we're not going to do that. The desire to be entertained yes. has triumphed over edification or, or anything like that. Yes. And that is one of the things is looking at what you feel entertained by. I think that can be a real revelation of where your heart is. Mm. But at the same time, there can be certain things where like God's called me to watch certain things that I would never recommend for someone else. Like, for example, when uh, Handmaid's Tale first came out, I was like, "Uh uh-uh, I did not want to watch. And I watched a couple and I'm like, this is awful. And I felt the Lord saying, no, you need to watch this because you need to 
know what people are accusing Christians of. Yeah. And so I went through two seasons and I'm like, am I done? And he was like, gave me permission not to watch anymore. And so that was good. Um, when the, the movie Cuties came out, um, Amy, one of my other mama bears and I took one for the team because we're not, we're not men who like would actually get excited about young girls gyrating, but we wanted to see what is this message? What's going on? And so we watched that for the purpose of explaining to people what was going on in that movie. So I think the Lord sometimes gives people certain permissions mm. to watch things that other people can't watch, but it's usually for a reason and usually for a ministry reason. Yeah. If it's purely entertainment and there's stuff that's just like gore and right. nastiness and, and sex, and that's mostly what it is, I, I would have to say, are you really watching that because the Lord's called you to make an exception here, or are you really entertained by that? And it's probably good to watch it with someone else who's on the same page with you so that you can have helpful conversations along the way. I know one of my seminary professors uh, who we've had on the podcast watched um, The 13 Reasons Why because he really wanted to deal with the issue of suicide and he wanted to understand yeah. the mindset and what was being promoted from that because he knew his students would be watching it. And so he was using that for ministry mm -hmm. purposes. And that I think that totally makes sense. Yeah. Um, again, I do want to come back to the new book. But before I get there, I want to ask, what are you finding are the most prominent theological questions and, and issues of the day that are rising up, that have come up even before Mama Bear Apologetics or when the book came out, you probably got a lot of letters from parents who were saying, hey, these are particular things that are coming up. What did you find is kind of that main arc that was coming out of all that? Well, there's some questions that I think will always come up just because as kids are like, questions are so good. Questions mean your kids are trying to piece their worldview together to make it make sense. And they can tell when a worldview doesn't make sense. Yes. So you're just going to have a, a series of questions that all kids are going to have, like the who made God question, you know, if God had made everything, then who made God? <laughs> um, and so we do address that in the first book, um, that basically everything comes down to something that is eternal, uncreated, and capable of creating. Now, people have put all sorts of different names to that. Some people say it's natural forces. Some people say the, you know, Carl Sagan, the universe was, is, and the result or ever will be, you know, people ascribe these deity kind of characteristics to things like it. Like if you read through uh, Darwin's Origin of Species, he has this moment where he like goes through and he starts praising natural selection like it's a worship song. And I'm like, wow, I mean, he, he, he totally nails a bunch of characteristics of God. So that's the good that I point out. Man, he really proves that you can tell who God is from what he's been made. However, uh, yeah. he ascribes it to natural selection. Um, so there, there are, I would say the questions have changed. Yes. And so, and I could categorize them yeah. into a couple different things. I would say that um, prior to Mama Bear starting, I think it was still, we, we still had vestiges of the, the, the modernism in the sense that people were asking for evidence and reasons for things. How do we know that mm. kind of questions? How do we know that Jesus existed? How do we know that the Bible was reliably transmitted? Luckily, we have just, I mean, an embarrassment of riches for resources for that. <laughs> I think where we've gone to now is uh, not, um, is there any evidence for God, but is there evidence that God is good? Mm. 
And this is where we start getting into the sexuality and the, you know, is, is God just trying to make people live their inauthentic selves? You know, what about slavery? The word slavery comes up in the Bible and, you know, my husband, John, has debated a guy who said from the lecture and I went with everybody kind of backed away, like waiting for lightning to strike because he was like, if I were God, I would have not written that. I might not do everything he did, but I would have gotten that one right. And and I'm going to be writing a book titled If I Were God. And I'm like, <laughs> good luck with that. Yeah. Um, we will publish this. So the goodness of God, I would say, is where the questions are coming from. Mm. And the reason why they're coming from them is postmodernism really questioned the concept of meaning. Yeah. What do things mean? Um, not what are they, but what do they mean? And I would say that as many questions as you can have coming from meaning, like even if the Bible was reliably transmitted, now we've got, you know, a whole sect of progressive Christians who are saying, well, this is what the men back, you know, you, this is what the white men, you know, cis hetero men back in their time um, understood about God. And so, we're trying to figure out God in the same way. So we, we don't necessarily have to go with what they say. We can figure out what God's saying in our time. So again, that meaning it was reliably transmitted. Yeah, they'll give you that, but then it doesn't mean what it sounds like it means. Yeah. Um, I would say where that's where the questions are coming from. Does it really mean what it sounds like it means? And do I think it's good? And under my definition of good, under my definition of loving, I'm the ultimate authority in this yeah. Sequence of events. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It really is. I am the ultimate authority. I determine good, true, just, unjust, all that stuff. Hmm. And so was it that finding that research and those responses led to the second book? <laughs> so the second book is kind of a funny story. Okay. <laughs> um, so my my publisher had been pitching this to me for a while saying, we really want you to write this book. And I kind of kept coming back with over my dead body. <laughs> right. um, there's just so many different veins going in there. It's like, how do you write something that's less than 800 words to explain everything that's going on? Yes. Uh, so that's one thing. And then uh, the sheer amount of spiritual attack. I was, I, I'll be honest, I was scared. Yeah, I was scared of that for if um, because you see people that are um, avidly in favor of the non-biblical sexual ethic uh, can be vicious. Yes, and uh, I mean everybody can be vicious, but it it was like did did I want to put myself in that line of attack? That issue in particular very much mm-hmm. rises the temperature in the room for sure. Yeah, because I mean, again, we, uh, people have been convinced that this is their identity and questioning my identity means questioning me right. uh, in my my right to exist. Right. And so, yeah, yeah. So um, we'll just say that the Lord dragged me kicking and screaming for that one. <laughs> yeah. And I think a lot of it um, was my own fear of not being able to explain this well enough, like it being so large in scope as to how we've gotten to where we are, that am I going to even be able to untangle the knots that have knots that have knots? And um, I would say by the end, I felt very, you know, I did exactly what I set out to do with with the books is to make people feel more empowered. There's a, a phrase that I repeat in that book over and over again. You can't refute that which you don't understand. Yeah. And so people saying they're scared to have these conversations about sex because they don't even understand what's going on in the culture or why this is going on in the culture. So they almost like 
stay away and kind of make it a, well, God said so, we believe it, and that's all I can really tell you. Yeah. Um, winter's just so much more richness to it, and I I am really glad that I ended up writing this book uh, along with Amy. And my husband said that if he'd known that the Harvest House had pitched it to me so many times, and I said no, he's like, uh-uh, I would have told you, you have to write that. Oh, wow. So, yeah, so I think in the acknowledgments at the end, I said, this book is the epitome of what it means for me to conquer fear. Yeah, <laughs> I can understand. I mean, it is the issue of the day. I remember hearing a pastor in my old church, he was a visiting pastor, and he said, I wish nothing more than for our issue of the day to be justification by faith alone. But that's not our issue. Wouldn't that be our nice? Issue, our issue is th- this issue of sexuality. And and as you've said, it's, it, it feels like an attack on the value of the person, of the individual. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the research that went into this, the, the effort, the, the, um, and kind of how you navigated all that terrain. As you said, I mean, it's a bear of an issue. <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. So one of the ways, you know, navigating that research, um, Amy's and my browser history will never be the same. <laughs> I can say that. I had to burn those computers. <laughs> yeah. Amy and I joke about some of the things that we get in our junk mail nowadays. We're like, oh, look. <laughs> it was research, I promise. And uh, I think even our editor had to go to uh, the tech people at Harvest House and be like, you've got to expect that you're going to find some freaky little things in my yeah. search history yeah. now. Don't worry, I'm not not doing anything wrong. This is just part of the book that that I'm helping out with. So uh, I would say it came together kind of piece by piece of like, you know, we started out with topics we knew we needed to address. And then what happened as we went is I started finding another thing. Oh, my gosh, we have to address yeah. this. Oh, my gosh, we need to address yeah, this. And so yeah. the book really morphed. As we went, um, I think one of the biggest, I'll say it scare quotes, one of the biggest gifts that we had was... Um, the uh, a group called CECUS, which stands for Sexuality Information Education Council of the United States, sounds super official, right? Super, yeah, they are not official, but they convince a lot of the schools that they are. And I think they were waiting for the 2020 election to happen to put forth their new sex ed standards. So right when we're writing the book, all of a sudden I'm seeing these new sex ed standards, and it's all the things that. People had been said, this is what they're trying to shove in there. And, and, and other people were like, you're just a conspiracy theorist. Right. And they gave us the greatest gift ever by totally writing it all out. Wow. And yeah, so we get into that. I mean, they literally talk about um, in their sex ed standards, like, what's our guiding mission and vision? And, you know, one of them is uh, reproductive justice, which is another word for abortion. Sure. Um, racial justice, which I don't know what that has to do with sex. Um, language inclusivity, which is the, uh, the, it's basically something called queer theory. This is where all the pronouns come from yeah. and all the different things. Um, they literally say in the like intro of it that sexual health is a product of trying on all these identities and that, uh, you know, the sexual identities are not immune from them. So basically, you just need to try it all on and see if it fits, to which I had to ask. So that sexual health, have we been doing it wrong this whole time? Like, how did we all turn out normal? This is like, is what's supposed to happen. Depends on what you mean by normal. Yeah, I know, right? You can see it just building piece. I mean, like your third through fifth graders are supposed to know 
the effects of hormones on transgender youth. I'm like, I'm sorry, we have not had enough research to where doctors understand that. I mean, we're finally starting to see some of the ramifications, but if they think a third through fifth grader is going to understand that, it's like you kind of have to have the data first. They have, what's it called? Um, An activism section where they slowly become more activists. So like, you know, by the time they're in eighth grade, it's how can you promote a project at your school that will promote diversity, you know, it's the whole DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion of all people at the school, which means, uh, you know, all the pronouns, all the sexualities, all the everything. Um, It comes from this idea that there is nothing sexual that could possibly make one person's decision more or less harmful than another. The only harmful decision you can make is, um, well, consent and um, consent and pleasure. Consent and pleasure, like their litmus test. If like two people consent and it gives them pleasure, then then it's okay. And to which case, when they're talking about sexual health, consent and pleasure. I mean, their way to go is if your sixth grader wants to learn about. I don't know how salty I can get on here, what our audience is, but I just want to be frank because your kids. it out later. I mean, kids are hearing this. People need to hear it. Like, um, if me and my girlfriend uh, want to learn how to have sex while choking, I need someone to help teach me how to do this safely. And that is sexual health right there, making sure they can do it safely. Um, it's a completely different worldview, and they just spell it out. They want to normalize everything. I mean, their, their number one problem is that anything that's been on the fringe, any of the alternate, anything other than cis heterosexual relationships, meaning a man or woman who is at home in their own body um, and who has a heterosexual relationship, anything outside of that has been a uh, power play to silence people. And they are now the oppressed groups. And if you want to fight for justice, you need to fight for these oppressed groups to have equal uh, visibility equal rights under the law, equal everything. I mean, this is how we're getting to the thing where they're like installing litter boxes in classes because they don't just want the right to do something, but they also want to have equity, which is equal outcomes for someone. So it used to be, well, whatever you want to do in the privacy of your own home is fine. Now I have to be able to do it at my workplace or at my school and have nothing impeding me from my work or the outcomes I want to do if that's the identity I want to choose to have. Mm-hmm. Um, anything where you're denying someone's right to be who they really think they are, quote unquote, is bad and is unjust. And if you want to love like Jesus loved, he is a God of justice. You will fight for the justice for these people um, that have been on the margins of society. And that is how our Christian kids are being wrapped into this because they know that Jesus said love. They know that he's a God of justice. They know that injustice is wrong. But they swallow whatever a person says is unloving or unjust. I think I knew about these things, but I mean, just the way I was watching your face. Yeah, it's uh, it's probably all over my face. I mean, I'm overwhelmed. I mean, this is okay. So, did you find while you're doing this research? I mean, did you did you have that look that I had on my face? I mean, was it just like you just kept turning a new leaf, or, or or did you have already the worst assumptions of what was taking place? Well, we'll say that there's a lot of darker stuff that didn't make it into the book because sure. at some point Naturally. you lose the yeah. and like I mean I've I've gotten you know dirty looks at my parents' small group because I've forgotten what's okay to talk about in polite company because I was so 
absorbed and all this stuff that I'm like, oh yeah, maybe I shouldn't talk about that flight <laughs> company. Like it's all ideas to me. I don't Filters know. I think the fun. Lord gave me a special dispensation of protection yeah. while I was writing this book. And I would, I, there's no way I could have done that without him being able to do that. The darkness, there were times when, especially reading stuff like um, Michel Foucault, oh, yeah. I would go up to the church to read it because it was so dark and any pastor that passed me, I was like, will you pray over me real quick while I'm reading this? Um, it's like, I don't even really get into as dark as it gets. I try to keep it more on the practical thing of what they're saying out loud and the stuff that they're not saying out loud. Just know that there's a lot going on underneath the surface there too. And I think parents are so unaware of what is going on so that when their child comes back and say, I'm pansexual, they're like, you're what? They don't even know the terminology sure. enough to know what their child is claiming. And some of these kids, I don't think they even know what it is. Yeah. Uh, a good friend of mine, her daughter has a friend who just came out as pansexual. And I was like, I doubt she's even had sex. And, and my friend says, I don't think she's even been kissed. <laughs> um, and so for her, being pansexual that's means she idea. loves everybody sure. because that's how love has been defined. It's just loving everybody. Or you look at something like... Um, there's a couple different iterations. There's a genderbred person or there's the gender unicorn, which yeah. kind of helps you tell the difference between biological sex, gender identity, gender expression. And then you have these two other categories, which are sexual attraction and romantic attraction. They literally have no category for friendship. Romantic attraction is defined as wanting to go on dates and talk with people and hang out, but not necessarily have sex. And I'm like, we called that friendship. You know, I was like, under this category, every girl is romantically attracted to her best friend, as is every guy. Right. And um, it, it's, it really is changing the labels that people are putting on things. And I, I don't think that we can underestimate the power of labeling something because you kind of start becoming that which you a label is almost like a banner of authority if you look in genesis one where the authority of god to name adam and then the authority of adam to name the animals yeah and to name eve it's like naming something has this authoritative component we even see it in some of our folklore and some of the pagan things where if you get the name it's like you see this when jesus uh goes after uh demons he says what is your name because there's authority in that name or you see in revelation where he says he's going to give them a new name there is something powerful about taking on a label that we start to conform to whatever that label is and people are just slapping labels on themselves all over the place yeah even the uh the demons that say you are the son of god and jesus has to tell them to be quiet was because they thought that they could have authority over him by naming who he was with anyway that's really fascinating and i uh okay you've opened the can now we have to kind of uh, we don't have to go through everything but i I don't want people to walk away with oh my goodness things are so terrible you know let's build the bunker and go hide out yeah help us disentangle some of these things is yeah. your goal in the writing of this book, would one of your goals be for parents, you obviously want parents to have a greater awareness, mm. but do they need to know everything? Um, I think they need to know a lot more than they already know, because okay. remember, if your kid does not see you as an expert, they will not come to you with questions. Yes. And if they're like, I've never heard that word before, you know, how, how can you willing do you think their kid yeah. is going to be to come ask them? 
so in that sense, I say we need to take one for the team. And if it's out there, we need to know it. Wow. And I only kind of bridge the surface on here. <laughs> I think this is where we're getting in groups of parents where you just kind of kind of divide and conquer. Yeah. Uh, what have your kids been talking about? What are your kids been talking about? Amy says she has this coalition of parents that are all friends with her sons. And their sons all think that they're just omniscient because no one can do anything without all the parents knowing. It's like you do something at someone's house. By the time you get home, your mom's yelling at you. And they're like, how did you know? Um, <laughs> That's healthy, though. But um, I, I think uh, there's a couple different things. Number one, I think we need to have a better understanding of the intention of sex beyond God just wanted it to be male and female and not really have a reason. Yes, right. Um, I would say probably one of the strongest parts in the book, I would say, is the the first three chapters where we really try to go in depth yes. as to the theological implications of sex. There is a theory that I had a long time ago, even before my master's in biology, that it became more and more and more strong the more I studied yeah. the body and the physical world. And that is the physical world is meant to be a picture of something that's going on in the spiritual world. Mm. I can actually learn about the spiritual realm by studying the physical realm. I think every pastor needs to take an intro to cell biology class just so he can see what a healthy functioning cell looks like and how that would relate to you know people in his church and roles and kind of uh, boundaries that need to be in place and all that stuff. So, the, probably the two things that I came across with that, um, one of them was from a book that I read by John Piper, and I read it back in 2006. Another one was a guy that I discovered real late in the game, and literally like a week before my deadline, I was like, how do I fit so many of these ideas into the book? Uh, and that's Christopher West in his book, Our Bodies Tell God's Story. Mm-hmm. And he comes from um, a Catholic background background. Uh, who is it? John Paul II. His original project when he first became Pope was to do this enormous, extensive theology of the body. Mm. I think it's called uh, Male and Female. He made them. Interesting. Uh, I believe this in the name of the book. And then Christopher West did a distilled because that book's like a thousand pages. So Christopher West did a good distilling of that. Yeah. And just this idea of sex being a physical recitation of your marital vows. Mm. And it's pointing back to a promise that you've already made. Like the people who say sex is a promise, I don't think sex is a promise. I think sex points back to a promise that you already made on your wedding day. Mm. So that would be one thing. The second thing that I thought was just uh, when I learned this back in like 2006, it's like I had one of those paradigm shifts like I've never had before where Piper, it was done, it was called Sex and the Supremacy of Christ. Uh, it was a conference, but he um, he included a bunch of stuff. But in some of the intro chapters, it talks about how our the way we view sexuality and our ability to see God correctly are absolutely intertwined. That if you introduce a deviation in your ability to see God correctly, and it works the other way around. If you have a uh, if you have an improper view of who God is, you will probably have a deviation in your in your sexuality. These two things go together, and it's like when you read through the Old Testament and see every single time they fell to sexual sin, they went pagan. They went full pagan. Yes. And uh, I've seen this happen with friends of mine who started out being very, very strong Christians, having a biblical worldview of sex. I've got one girl that now leads sex and health summits uh, about how to heal your body through sex. When you start going away from that biblical sexuality, it is like just this giant door into 
almost demonic. Okay. And now I'm thinking down the track, which is kind of your part two. Wait, my mm-hmm. kids are being taught what? And so now I think we, <laughs> yeah. need to, we need to venture into the education world. And this is mm-hmm. always a hot topic for any parent. Uh, I yep. don't know what it's like in Iowa, but for us here in Georgia, it's very much private Christian school, homeschool, public school, you know, and maybe some other little options in between. And people will have arguments over what is the right thing. So in your research, where, you know, is it is it exclusively in the public schools where that group with the long acronym was kind of coming in and, and having some control? And, you know, would that vary from state to state? And so, you know, how do you, do you kind of wrestle through the education aspect? Yeah. So I think a lot of Christian entities want to have a biblical view of sexuality. They just don't understand why. God gave the commands that he did. So when their kids ask, they're like, well, that's just what the Bible says. And if you have someone says, that's just what the Bible says versus someone giving you this long explanation that also allows you to follow your desires, you're going to go with the person who sounds like they know what they're talking about. So here's kind of what I see going on in the larger culture. And it goes back to um, something called intersectionality and social justice. And by the way, social justice is also listed in the uh, in the SICAS 2020 National Sex Ed Standards. And it's the idea that we have people who have um, historically had power, social power, and those who did not have social power. So it's like you would see the white guys kind of rise above to all these positions of power historically, while, while women and minorities typically didn't get those high positions of power. So it takes that and now it's going to say, let's identify all the different minorities. So they have it declassified between uh, sex, gender, sexuality, race, religion, um, all these different things. And they actually put it, it's called matrix of oppression. If you Google matrix of oppression, you can find it and you can identify where you are on there. And you, there, you can even say there's sometimes when I'm in an oppressed group and sometimes when I'm in the oppressor category. Wow. And so what the goal is for social justice is to have all of these groups have equal amount of power. But since there doesn't naturally exist that power, it means you have to lift up the voices of the ones who have been historically marginalized. That's, you know, we saw a lot of that happening with feminism and with women and stuff like that. And then, you know, we have all these different, you know, people of color days and we the people of color spaces and black only spaces now and stuff like that. But what we also have is people who are transgender or people who identify as one of the different sexualities that we need to lift them up. And so this is one of the things that our kids are having drilled into them 24-7 is what it means to love. To love means to affirm someone's choices, to affirm that that person knows themselves better than anyone else. And so if you disagree with anything about how they consider themselves, you're basically trying to put them in a box that it doesn't fit in. And you wouldn't like it if someone did that to you. So you need to champion for them to be able to live their authentic self, to live their truth. In the meantime, it has all these things that the Bible has called sin. Um, That our Christian kids, because they desire to love and because they desire to see justice are now elevating. So that's, that's problem number one. Mm. Problem number two is they have completely 
destroyed this concept, which I think every parent, if you want to start somewhere, this is where I think you need to start. Um, you need to explain to your like 18 to 24 year old kid that there's this period of time in your life where it's practically your job description that you are going to feel uncomfortable in your body. That your body's going to do weird things. It's going to grow weird things and it's going to make you embarrassed and you're not going to know what to do with it and you're not going to feel at home in it. And that's not a weird thing. That's puberty for everybody. It's common for everyone. Yeah, this is something. I think we think it's uncommon. Yeah, no, we've told them that this, it's like we have all these TikTok influencers that are saying, if you feel uncomfortable in your body, something radically has gone wrong. If you feel anxious over this stuff, something radically has gone wrong. You're having to live a lie. So you need to experiment and find out who your authentic self is. And once you find out who your authentic self is, all that anxiety and all that discomfort will go away. Now, If I had been told back when I was going through puberty that there was this magic pill, uh, i.e. cross-sex hormones that would take away all that anxiety. And by the way, for girls, taking testosterone does take away the anxiety temporarily. It feels like a savior at the beginning. Wow. Then I could have easily fallen for that hook, line, and sinker because I was super uncomfortable with my role. I had a lot of more... Uh, guy interests in terms of just, you know, maybe more intellectual stuff. I just didn't care about high heels. Not that it mattered. I can't wear high heels. My feet are too small. But um, like um, I kind of had stuck in my head that to be a woman meant that you were irrational and emotional. And by golly, I was anything but that. And so I would distance myself from anything feminine. So these what you're describing are social constructs by some measure yes these yeah. are social constructs with it which they have turned into absolutes so which is crazy because they don't believe in absolutes right i mean it, i mean the whole concept is, oh is, yeah i know I'm <laughs> they sneak them back in with all these really silly things as long as it fits the narrative it's like they're reinforcing every gender stereotype that feminism <laughs> right. like second wave exactly. feminism tried to like get out of which is why jk rowling is canceled by people because she fights yes. for feminism and not trans issues yeah, so there's something called TERFs. It's called um, uh, trans-exclusionary radical feminism. Because the, in, in one of the interesting things, Judith Butler, who was like kind of at the forefront of, uh, she, was, she was a woman and she was a lesbian, she actually saw the implications of this, that one day um, you could actually be writing women out of the equation, and she was okay with it. <sighs> Wow. Uh, she has a book called Gender Trouble. She actually foresaw this and she was fine with it. Yeah, this this whole, yeah, I could go on for a while about that. Yeah, so um, I can't remember where we stopped. So another way I think our kids are getting sucked in is they're believing that all this discomfort is abnormal. And all these TikTok influencers have... Um, they seem to have this wonderful, you know, after they've transitioned, they're much more comfortable with themselves. Not only that, we've now got these zero uh, tolerance bullying policies that are being um, placed in every single school district. Unfortunately, they don't seem to cover people with, you know, big noses or, you know, weird freckles or, uh, you know, fat or uh, funny looking in some way. But they do cover anybody who identifies under LGBT. Wow. Wow. And so 
if you're someone who's been traditionally picked on, you maybe have had social awkwardness, you have a guaranteed way not only to be protected by every single teacher in the school, and then also every single kind kid in the school, all you have to do is place yourself under that label. And uh, I think it was in uh, Abigail Schreier's book that 60% of parents reported a boost in popularity for their kid when they came out as transgender. And so we have these kids that are really trying to, yeah. they, they just, they feel socially awkward and they feel like they need protection yeah. and this guarantees them protection. So it's incentivized mm-hmm. uh, trans LGBTQIA kind of mindset. Yeah. It's like, you're not only accepted for who you are, you're now actually applauded and you get your own parades and you get your own flag and you get your own rainbow. And I, I, again, I can say I was really socially awkward um, when I was in high school and that would have been great if I had had the whole school have my back just by claiming the label. Um, This is a a lot of times you'll see kids, uh, Christian kids saying, well, I'm bisexual because then they can say, well, I'm, I'm open to the other stuff, but I still have my boyfriend or whatever, you know, they they can still act like a heterosexual, but if they claim that bisexual, they're now under that protection. And it's almost like part of the cool kids at that point. Think about how many things we did because they were in fashion when we were kids. And when we've turned sexuality into a fad, into uh, it's really it's really not a fad. It's a social contagion. And you see it more so among groups of girls, according to Abigail Schreier. Mm. You're kind of uh, drawing what you know, what you and I would have grown up with as compared to this sexual ethic that's now in place here. But Mm -hmm. but the fallout of that is far more drastic than what you and I would have found as popular in high school. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Much more. So this whole thing about puberty blockers being having being totally reversible, that's just not true. And again, we're going to get a little salty here, just kind of explain what's actually going on. If you're a 12-year-old boy who goes on puberty blockers, by the time you come off of them, it, it's like basically it halts your puberty, which means the growth of your penis stops. And so they're having these boys who realize, oh, no, I think I am happy as a boy. But by the time they figure it out, and that's just going to be hard for any guy who wants to live a life. And so it's almost like, well, might as well go through with it. Or the girls, they're going to have problems with uh, osteoporosis, hair loss. Their voice will never go back to what their voice was before. I think they're always going to have facial hair. There's just all these things that you... It's like there are things that are irreversible during this process. And... And a lot of a lot of them, it actually sterilizes them so that they cannot have children in the future. So if they want to call that, uh, you know, reversible. Right. Um, but again, we don't have enough studies that are out on this showing this across the board. We have some these brave souls who are willing to question the dogma, um, trying to shout things and say, this is not a good idea. But the ones that are doing it are losing their jobs. We have doctors being said... Unless you give these hormone blockers, these puberty blockers to these kids, you will lose your job. Mm. And so in this sense, we're not even going to have accountability in the future for who was actually at fault. Who actually is going to get sued? Is it the doctor? Is it right. the board of directors? Like, you can't even hold anybody accountable at that point. We have, we're, we're just going through this stage of, of experimentation that I don't think we're going to see the full fallout of this for at least 10 or 20 years. Mm. And I'm curious to get your thoughts on this. I mean, you could hear this and just think, oh, my goodness, 
I'm getting my kids and we're moving to the mountains of, you know, Appalachia <laughs> and we're not, you know, <laughs> getting away from all. I mean, so how do you help parents navigate this? And I know a lot of this will come back to what we talked about at the beginning, but how do you help them navigate this without maybe overreacting or what is the way that you counsel them through this? Yeah. So there's different opinions on this, um, even within my own mama bear team. Sure. Uh, it really depends on what your school district is, yes. what your kid's church is like. Yep. Um, and this, this has to be a decision that every parent makes for themselves. I know that there's a lot of parents that are saying we can't be sending our kids to this indoctrination for eight hours a day, five days a week, and then expect them to be able to handle themselves by, you know, singing a song about the right. gopher yeah. barky barky that was on the ark, you know, the right. arky arky with gopher barky barky, and then drawing a picture. It's like, I'm sorry, that's not nope, going to, it won't do it. That's not no. going to fly. No. Um, I think uh, I call it the kiss method. Keep it simple, stupid. Yeah. Uh, I have a friend of mine who's up in um, Oregon who she's, she's in the front lines where, you know, she takes her kids to the playground. They sit down and the parents introduce. And the first thing is, oh, this is my child. Their pronouns are he, her, she, them, you know, whatever the pronouns are. Um, that you always keep, take it back to God's design. That It's like it, as many new things can be possibly invented for sexuality, take it back to what is God's design on this mm. and also why that was his design. I think that's something that can be really powerful, especially when kids are starting to notice, okay, so God's design is um, daddies and mommies to stay together forever to raise their kids man and woman in a lifelong uh, committed relationship for the stability of their children. What happens when that is deviated from, you are always going to see fallout from that. Like, um, and again, there's going to be imperfect times where there is, you know, divorce and abuse, you know, we're really kind of things needed to happen. We needed to get someone out of dangerous way. But for the most part, if you want to have a baby, like, I kid you not, kids are going to be confused about who they can have a baby with nowadays yes. yeah. uh, growing up with this. Um, yeah. So, if you want to have a baby, you got to be in a male-female relationship. There's a, a girl, Katie Faust and Stacey Manning wrote a book called Them Before Us. It talks about the children's revolution of what happens to children when they are denied their biological mother and father. And how our bodies and the bodies of parents seem to be built around this nuclear family. And a healthy nuclear family does provide the best protection and the best upbringing for these kids to become healthy, adjusted, well-adjusted adults. And so, whenever you deviate from that, you're always going to be making sacrifices. And I think this, this can hit home with some people who are divorced but you got to recognize that um, there's legitimate reasons for divorce. And so even within that divorced or blended family, you can even remind them, hey, you know who had the original blended family? Jews and Gentiles. We were grafted in. Mm. And so, but just keeping it back to God's design and why and how things work out. Like I, there's this one like little game that I think <laughs> you can play with your older kids, probably not with your younger kids. Let's just think of all the things that would go away if people only had sex with their spouse. STDs. We're going to get rid of a lot of the adulteries. We're going to get rid of STDs. We're going to get rid of uh, babies out of wedlock. We're going to get rid of, um, I mean, just the list goes on. Probably poverty. <laughs> I mean. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh... Yeah, exactly. And so keep it simple. 
has to be reinforced. So this is another thing that I, I, I say in the book over and over again. It's from the book called uh, Thinking Fast and Slow by David Kahneman. That it's along the lines of the human brain has a hard time just distinguishing between that which is familiar and that which is true. So we have to take, if, if you're a parent, you have to be paying attention to how much this um, agenda is being promoted in your kids' schools. And if it's being promoted hard, I really think you need to start saying, yeah. what do we have to do to take them out of this school? There's Unless you want to try to compete with eight hours a day, five days a week, in which case you're just always going to be telling your kids things, yeah. uh, repeating over and over again, hoping that they get the, the right message. Um, we can't we can't compete with with that amount of repetition. Yeah. Let me ask you a question about this. So as a parent of little ones, this is a kind of in my mm-hmm. our friend group, we tend to talk about age specific things. So we've obviously talked about a lot of heavy issues that have been way too much for a really young child, but is there a point like, do you break down ages? Does it have to do with the maturity of the child and what they're able to comprehend? Is that kind of up to the parent? What do you kind of recommend for levels of conversation and making that relatable to them? Yeah, I would say it definitely depends on the maturity of the child, but it also depends on what kind of media they're watching because you're seeing this kind of stuff, um, same-sex families and, and all that so coming in come, in yeah. cartoons and Sesame Street. Yep. And in fact, the, the, the first time Sesame Street for like, you know, family day where they had two, two dads, they had a psychologist comment on this episode and saying why it was so great that they were able to reach kids before their parents' biases had taken effect. So we have to recognize that the culture around us, it's like kid friendly used to mean there's no sex in there. Nowadays, kid friendly means introducing these kids to all these concepts before the parent biases can come in. So they're actually not safe with kid friendly things. Mm. And again, this comes down to they think they are, they're, they're basically evangelizing the way Christianity evangelized. They're taking what they believe is true, what they believe is right, what they believe is fair, what they believe will lead to flourishing. Yes. And they're putting it into kids' language starting very, very young. And so we don't have the luxury of ignoring this. Yeah. Even outside of media, you're seeing it in your own neighborhoods. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, at grocery stores. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's around us. Yeah. I mean, it is essentially d- destroying our kids. Uh, well, I don't want to say destroying. It is. Um, it's forcing them to ask the questions a little earlier. It's taking their innocence before they should yeah. have it taken from them. Because yeah. there, there's a there's a verse in the Song of Solomon that says, do not awaken love until it so desires. That mm. I think a lot of times the sexuality is like a switch that gets flipped. And this is why it's so dangerous when when kids have had um sexual abuse that that switch gets flipped yes. really early and yes. you see all these kind of pseudo adult looking behaviors as yes. they're growing Comes up that, that yep. are around sexuality and so i think the switches are getting flipped and so we're gonna have to be learning how to parent differently mm. based on that by just affirming truth everywhere we can let me read you this question that came from one of our listeners and um uh, then we can just talk about it quickly. So uh, she writes, good morning. I just came across your podcast last week. Thank you so much for all you do. I'm writing to you as a heartbroken mama. We have raised our children in a Christian home, and my 17-year-old son is struggling with his faith. 
He is so smart, and he thinks there are so many inconsistencies in the Bible and isn't sure about the historical accuracy of it all. He also said he doesn't know how to experience God. He's not very open to talking about his doubts, and I don't want to shove my beliefs down his throat. Please help me. Please give me advice on how to help him. I found this a really interesting question because it feels like a catch-22. The teenager is going in a direction and doesn't want to talk about it. <laughs> you know, So it's like, how do you go back to what we talked about at the very beginning, which is that mama bear mentality of, oh, no. Like, I'm not I'm not going to let this happen kind of thing. Uh, how, how do you wrestle that out with a teenager who's who doesn't even want to talk about it? Yeah. So I actually have a, a presentation on this. I don't have this was the, the book that I wanted to write at first. And then it became the second book and then the third. And, and I just don't know when I'm going to get it in. But it's a talk called Diagnosing Doubt. Mm. And it's actually looking at what is the actual root cause of doubt, because a lot of times what they say is the root cause is not the root cause. Um, because the things that he's claiming are his main things are things that are very easy to study. So if we want to look at one of the people who's probably done more to s- see doubt in people's minds in terms of biblical uh, scriptural inerrancy is Bart Ehrman. Yep. He used to be a Christian. He was at Moody Bible. However, even in one of his footnotes of his book, he says, oh, and by the way, none of, none of the variations. He, he talks about there's more variation in the Bible than you even have words in the Bible. Well, you got to figure out the way they count these variations. But he says in one of the footnotes, oh, by the way, none of this affects any core doctrine. From the horse's mouth, (laughs) from the guy who's like trying to make it sound like it's this huge problem. And he recognizes that, you know, it's stuff like spelling John with two N's instead of one because it's in a different region. There's like maybe three actual things i think the um the woman caught in adultery is not yep. in the John earliest eight. manuscripts yep the end of mark. um yeah the end of the, the the long end of mark is it mark yeah, um mark and um i think there's something in isaiah that says the light of life right instead of just the light and it's like those are kind of the, there's nothing major about christianity that's going to change because of those so if that's what he's claiming is the problem, then that's really easy to address. What I often find more is that you have four types of doubt. You're going to have the intellectual doubt where it really is going to be questions on how do these things fit together? I, I mean, what's the evidence for this? And I would say that's the minority. Yes. Of, but that's how people will phrase their question because yes. uh, most people don't know how to answer that yes. um, to begin with. Then you have the, the one that it normally is... Um, emotional doubt where there's something that's happened to them where they are having a hard time trusting God and they feel angry at God for something. And that anger is going to come out with, I don't want anything to do with you and don't touch my wounded heart. You know? Mm. So I would say, is there something there? But on the other side is if there are, there's what I call uh, behavioral doubt, or I have a friend of mine who calls it uh, moral doubt. Mm. Where basically you know that uh, the way that you're living is not in accordance with the Bible. And because of cognitive dissonance, it's like you can't say you believe something and then act completely different without your body being like, something's wrong here. Right, right. Um, and something needs to go. So your belief in God is going to be the thing that goes. Mm. But that kind of doubt, I would say emotional doubt is going to be really connected to probably something that happened uh, the behavioral and moral doubt, that's going to be the kind of doubt that kind of, I think, slowly came on maybe yeah. sometimes. 
kind of the frog being boiled uh, in the kettle. Yep. Um, but then another category, which uh, I didn't even realize was a category until I was doing this presentation and writing on it, um, which is spiritual doubt. And where it's, we just have spiritual attack. There are beings out there that are not for, yeah. <laughs> that really hate us. And and so it, it's interesting to see this one in um, Mother Teresa's book, Lord Be My Light. I think that's the name of it. Yeah where she would have these periods of just raucous doubt uh, that she describes, but it had nothing to do with her intellect. It had nothing to do with her emotions. It had nothing to do with anything she was doing. I think she was just under spiritual attack. The two where the person really don't want you to touch their doubts is going to be the emotional. It is going to be the behavioral. And, And I'll say, especially because, you know, being male, if there is something that really hurt them, they're even less likely to want to talk about what happened. Hmm. So maybe just asking questions about um, maybe talking around the doubt, you know, what was your church experience and, and, and what made you, what did you hate most about church? You know, find out what they said, what, what drove you nuts? See if you can uncover some of those things and don't ever go into answer mode for for someone who it's emotional doubt, the answers will never assuage the doubt. No. All you can do is uh, answers will uncover that it's not intellectual. Uh, so, for example, John and I had a friend of ours that said, you need to come talk to my friend. She's got all these questions. And so we sat down with this girl. And for two hours, I kid you not, two hours, she just asked question after question after question. And she didn't listen to the answers. It's like as soon as she could tell we had an answer, she'd move on to the next question until she finally went silent. And we said, is there anything else? And she goes, I don't know. No one's ever gotten that far with me before. (laughs) Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So at that point, she had to leave the conversation realizing maybe my questions aren't intellectual. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, But if he's not even willing to talk about those, I would say very much there's there's either a sin that he doesn't want to give up or more likely there's something emotional that happened that has hurt him and he doesn't know how to talk about it. Mm. I think that's fantastically helpful. Um, We'll make sure to send this episode to her uh, if she hasn't already listened to it when it comes out. Uh, Hillary, we could probably talk for like three more hours, I think. Um, <laughs> how, much, how much time do you have? Uh, but I just want to say thank you, thank you, thank you for, for one, for the research that you've done, uh, for putting in the effort um, in writing your two books, uh, Mama Bear Apologetics and uh, Mama Bear Apologetics Guide to Sexuality. I cannot recommend them highly enough. I hope that our listeners are going to the show notes or going to Amazon or somewhere and, and, and purchasing this, um, whether you have children or not, I think, uh, this is a way that the church, um, as you talked about the little cohorts of, of groups of parents that work together, I I think that's, that's a a picture of the church doing its work together. And, um, I think we, Mm -hmm. we need more of that in our society, in our, in our day and age. Um, I wonder if I could ask you a special favor. Could you close us out with a prayer and just praying for the types of people who have asked the question that we've just talked about and and even those who are maybe struggling with uh, identity and meaning and purpose and all that sort of thing? Would you do that for us? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. (sighs) Father God, we come to you knowing that um, 
every generation has a unique battle and every generation says that we've, we have never seen this before. Not that there was anything new under the sun, but every single challenge that is wreaking havoc on a generation feels new. And it's like, we can't take the stuff that worked before and make it work again, Lord, because I think you don't work that way, Lord. You want everybody's faith to be their own. And so just trying to find the right formula is not the way to create followers, Lord. It's not the way to create children of God. And so in that sense, Lord, I I thank you that we can feel at peace that generations before us have all faced a unique challenge that no other generation faced. And they too got through it and they too produced Christ followers, Lord. I just pray for um, the parents and and the kids right now that are having to face these challenges of just really smooth sounding lies, especially lies that have to do with their identity. Lord, a lot of these are going to be people who were already hurting and broken. And all they're doing is they're trying to find something that will make them hurt less, that will make them feel less broken, that will make them feel like they do belong, Lord. And may we dignify this very true need that they are experiencing, Lord, and not just um, take all this information and try to, you know, explain it away. Therefore, your experience is invalid, Lord. I pray that we would see the need in the hearts of those who are falling prey to these lies. Uh, Lord, I pray that the scales would fall from the eyes and that your truth would go out, Lord. I pray that when people hear truth, it would feel like freedom, that they would say, oh, I can have freedom from all these lies, that they would become sick of it. I, I pray that they would, you would reveal to them the bankruptcy of the worldview to which they are desperately clinging, thinking that it's going to bring them human flourishing when it doesn't. It just puts us in layers and layers of shackles. Lord, I pray for the parents that feel like everything is riding on their backs and that like they have to be aware of everything. And if they screw up in one area, their children are are just doomed to not make it. Lord, I pray that you would release that burden from them and just remind them that your yoke is easy and your burden is light and that they are called to do the best that they can, but they cannot do everything, Lord. I pray that you would individually show them which aspect you want them to be responsible for and in what order, Lord. They they don't have to know everything all at once. Just pick one thing to start learning and start reinforcing that one thing with their family and with their children. And I pray for those who are in situations where they have felt too comfortable and really don't want to upset the status quo of their family, Lord. And the, the history of Christianity, Lord, has been a people who have been decidedly uncomfortable in this world because we are strangers and aliens in this world. This kind of level of comfort that we have right now, Lord, that is the anomaly. And so I pray that you would just be uh, raising up warriors who are just going to say, you know what, I'm going to give up my own comfort in order to raise godly children because one day they're going to stand before you, Lord, and it's not going to be about how big the house was or if they got a car when they turned 16 or uh, how many sports they played in which college they got into. It's going to be, how did you do? What did you do with the time I gave you? to disciple your children into the faith, Lord. And I pray that you would start um, putting gracious conviction in their hearts of things they may need to give up, that they're going to say, I will not make all these other things of the world more important than the discipleship of my kids. 
And Lord, for those who just feel like uh, they have so much on their backs that if they try to do one more thing that they will crumble, Lord, I pray that you would come alongside them and remind them that they're not parenting alone, especially single parents, Lord. That uh, I've gotten emails from parents that once they realize everything that's going on, they feel like they are so alone. They either have an unbelieving spouse or they're, they're divorced and they're trying to do this on their own, Lord. I pray that you remind them that they are not parenting alone. That again, Lord, it is, it, is, it is not our success that you call us to. It is faithfulness, Lord. And that they would um, be able to sift through the lies of the enemies, telling them how many things they need to tackle at once, Lord. But again, you would just show them specific things and in what order to start with, Lord. That don't let the you know perfect be the enemy of the good. Just because they can't do it perfectly, that they're never going to start, Lord. I pray that they would start with baby steps and that they would feel that you are going to honor those baby steps, Lord. Uh, And at the same time, remind them, Lord, that ultimately they are your children and that um, they can do whatever they can do. But ultimately, these are free beings, (laughs) free souls who can choose whether or not to embrace or reject God before them. There are no grandchildren in the family of God, Lord. So I I just pray for um, supernatural peace for those who are just riddled with anxiety. And I pray for a supernatural conviction and uh, call to action for those who have been complacent, Lord, because you know that there's just different, there's different parent types that are out there, Lord, and you speak to us each differently and you speak to us individually according to what we are currently doing and how we are currently operating in our families. I thank you, Lord, that your word will not return void. I thank you, Lord, that lies can be shown to be lies. Um, And that I thank you, Lord, that your worldview is the only worldview that matches reality, that matches the way we were designed, that when we follow according to your design, it's a really great design when followed. So, Lord, I just uh, I thank you for not making us put our head in the sand, uh, for believing things that just seem crazy. I thank you that we have a reasonable, rational faith, Lord, one that can stand up to questions, whether they be from an eight-year-old or an 80-year-old, Lord. And we pray that we would live each moment asking the Holy Spirit to guide us in all things, Lord God, knowing with faith and saying with faith that you will provide that wisdom, Lord. We thank you that you are a God that can be trusted. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. Hillary Morgan Ferrer, founder of Mama Bear Apologetics, author of Mama Bear Apologetics and Mama Bear Apologetics Guide to Sexuality. Hillary, it's been a privilege. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Absolutely. Candid is a podcast from Leading the Way with Dr. Michael Youssef. Don't forget to connect with our social media pages on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And subscribe to Candid Conversations on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. As always, thank you for listening to and sharing this episode.